Welcome to the bridge. We're, uh, we're thrilled to have you in this place. And I know we have some visitors in this place today, and I can already tell you raise our cool factor just a little bit in the room, so please continue around. We, we need help sometimes. So I'm glad you're in this place. Uh, you made it better just by showing up, but I hope you're able to do more than show up. I'm hoping uh, that today God meets you wherever you are and encourages you how you need to be encouraged and challenges you where you need to be challenged today. Um, one of the things that regardless of where we're from, regardless of what generation we live in, regardless of what season of life that we all experience is that from the beginning of time, man has tried to understand God. We, we've wanted to know what is he like? What does he like? What does he want from us? What is the purpose? Why are we here? What does he look like? What does he sound like? What are his plans for me? We, we want to know God and Throughout history, people have tried in different ways to meet him, whether it was building something that they hoped would be tall enough to actually be there with him, or whether it was worshiping something that he's made. We're just trying to know God. But because he is so other than us, because it's so supernatural and at times with us, we're so natural, we just don't get it. But we want to know him. We, we want to understand who's behind the curtain, if you will. And at the same time, God, throughout all that time, has been reaching out to us through creation, through miracles, through prophets, through prophecies, through the law that he gave, all sorts of ways God has tried to connect with us as well. But we're not really good learners. <laughs> we're not that intelligent at times, not as much as we want to think. And we, we don't grasp it. We can't get it at times. It's just too much for us. So God, in his mercy, at times, gives us images, something that we all understand, something that we all see that we can relate to to help us understand how to relate to him, whether it's the image of a shepherd or the image of a door or just light in general. God gives us these images to help us be able to hook on to what he's like because God desires to reveal himself to us. We're just not always able to understand it or even see it. So God gives us these images and has given us these images throughout time to help us connect with him. So over the next few weeks, I want us to take a look at some of those images, a few of those pictures, the things that God has given us to say, this is what I am like to you, and this is how I want to relate to you. This is the relationship between us, and here's a picture, here's an image to help explain, if you will, describe the relationship that we have. And the one that I want to look at today is perhaps the biggest. Usually you want to ramp up, but we're just going to start with the one that he uses the most often, that's the most obvious, that he begins the story of God with, the book of Genesis, and we find it in the very last chapter in the last book of our Bible, in the book of Revelation. And all in between, he comes up with this idea, and it is the image of a wedding. How he relates to us, he says, in many ways, is, is like a wedding. Now, one, I want to think, God, why would you use that? Because marriage, the wedding, the whole bit, that's not 100% positive across the board, depending on our experiences. Now, there are some of you that have said, I never want to be married, or I never want to be married again because of an experience that you've gone through, because of something that has happened around you, you've been affected by it. So you're, you don't want to be a part of that. And so it scares us a little bit. So I want you to know, we're not going to be talking about marriages. We're not going to be talking about building a healthier marriage or anything like that. If God chooses to do that in this setting, the Holy Spirit can do that, but it won't be from here. So if you're single or single or again or wishing you had been single, never mind, don't do that. But if you're wherever you are, just 
That's not where we are today. That won't be the focus. We're going to talk about how God relates to us in that image of a wedding. So knowing that it's not 100% positive across the board, that not all of us are incredible fans of the idea, why would God want to use that image above all the others to say, this is how I want to connect with you? Well, I think there are some things that he wanted us to understand, some things he wanted to teach us, show us, reveal to us, and this might have been, in his perspective, of course, the, the best way to do that. The first principle is this. He wants us to understand that he chose us. There's nothing more frustrating or discouraging than to find out you were not the first choice, that you are a part of something or you're with someone because you were just the first available or you were the last one standing. You were a fallback plan. It didn't work out over here, so you get to be a part of that. None of us wants to have that feeling. And I think at times, whether or not we voice it, I think at times we feel like we're the leftovers, and we're with God, and he's just stuck with us. He saw us as a child and thought, well, that guy's got potential. Uh, there's something about him. And then by the time we were 13, it was never mind. And the, but I'm already here. I got him. He's one of mine, so I'm stuck with him. And I think we have that feeling, especially when we're not necessarily living the life that we know we should be living or want to live, and we get, we get, begin to feel bad about who we are or have a low self-esteem. We're thinking, he's just stuck with me. But God uses that idea of a wedding in part because he wants us to understand that's not the case. That He literally chose us. And thousands and thousands of years ago, God had his pick of anyone on the entire planet. And God looked down at all the humans available. And he looked at Abraham and said, you're the one. I'm choosing you. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Not because of anything you've done, not because you've exceeded my expectations as a human, but just because I am choosing you, Abraham, you're going to be the one. And I am going to create a nation of people that will belong to me through you. At the time, Abram didn't even have a kid. He and his wife had been unable to have children, so it was surprising to him that God would ultimately pick him, that God would pick anyone, but especially him. But he chose him. Later on, God shows up again in Abraham's life in what we know is chapter 15 in that same book. And he says, he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so will your offspring be. He said, you can't count the stars, and you have no idea what I'm about to do through you. You're going to have more people in your family tree than you can even imagine, more than the stars in the sky. He showed up at another time in his life in verse, uh, uh, chapter 22, verse 17, and said, I will surely bless you, make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and sand on the seashore, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So he chose Abraham above all others and said, you're going to be my pick. So you and I, as in, in many ways, spiritual descendants of Abraham, and we'll understand that as we move forward, you and I were not in a, God's plan because we're the last ones around, because we were the only ones that couldn't figure out what we believed, so we just leaned on him. God looked and said, you're not perfect. 
You're not even ideal, but I'm choosing you. I'm choosing to love you. Not because of anything you're going to do for me, but I am choosing you. So God uses this idea, this picture, the image of a wedding to remind us that I am choosing you. He also is doing this to say he pursued us. He wants us to understand that he not only chose us, but that he continually pursues us, that he comes after us. It wasn't just enough to say, you're mine. He's also, in, the, in a sense, chasing us around. And if you follow the life of Abraham, you'll see where God pursued Abraham from where he was all the way down through what we know as Israel and his family line into Egypt and then back again. Because Abraham had a child named Isaac, and then ultimately Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had Joseph, and then the family moved around all the way down to Israel or Egypt and then back up into Israel again, and God continued to pursue him the entire way. And it reminds me of my time of pursuing who is now my wife, Christy. Um, that pursuit was, now that I look back on it, just a bit creepy. It was kind of strange, and I just popped up all the time when I was ready to, to date her. Um, I found myself in the library for the first time in my college after a couple of years, and I thought, oh, I'm just here. I just happen to be walking around. Oh, look at you. Hey, Christy, how are you doing? One of those deals. Or I'm in the cafeteria. I'm walking around with my tray. Oh, I didn't know you were there. Uh, there was some shrubbery I hit around. But I was all over the place, just popping up. Just like, oh, who would have thought you would be here? I was signing up for classes. I didn't even know that. But I, I was close to it. I just popped up everywhere because I was in pursuit. And I talked to a few of her friends and one of her roommates, and they would tell me, they'd say, are you into her? I'm like, well, it's pretty obvious. And I pop up everywhere. I'm all around. And they were saying, she just doesn't get it. Like, what do you mean she doesn't get it? Like, I'm, I'm here. I'm all around. And we talk. We go out. We've been to a meals together. I've taken her to a concert. Yeah, but she thinks y'all are buddies. I'm like, buddies? Three hours there, three hours back in the car, in the back seat with another couple in the front? Like, what This girl is just, what is happening here? They're like, you, you need to make it incredibly clear. You just need to tell her. And it was so hard to explain. Like, this is why I continue to pop up in your life, is I, I, I want this to be a thing, and I'm not going to give up. And if you look throughout the book of Genesis and Exodus around, God just continues to pop up. He pops up in tents. He pops up by creeks. He pops up in the middle of the desert. He's just everywhere. And then in Exodus chapter 3, he shows up literally in some shrubs. Like I kind of mentioned, it was a weird idea, but it was mine. God said to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God had pursued his people all the way into Egypt, a different country. And he went to Moses and said, I've heard their cries and I'm continuing to pursue them. And now I'm ready to bring them in to a place that I have prepared for them. He continued to pursue. The third thing that I believe he's trying to tell us through this is that he promised us. So he chose us. He pursued us, and then he chose to make us a promise. The reason some of you have not been in relationships that have lasted too long is because you're afraid of making that commitment. Um, we all you know, hear the phrase, he or she has commitment issues, because we're afraid. Like, what if I commit and I, I change my mind? What if someone else cuter comes around? What if someone else more handsome comes around? What if someone with more money comes around? What if the better opportunity? What if I get tired of this? What if it was all about the pursuit and not? And we have all these what ifs, and we're afraid to make a commitment. 
And what we find here in just a moment is that God made a promise to his people. But he didn't make a promise when things are going really well. And I think everyone who's ever been in any kind of relationship from fourth grade until whatever age, we, we do this. We have a mind like you've got a gift or you've got a question or you've got something you really want to say. Or I remember just trying to get the words, I love you, out to Christy. I didn't want to just throw it around like I'd thrown it around in, in grade school or something. I wanted to really mean this thing. And I did a Fonzie kind of, I, I couldn't get it out. You know, I love you. I didn't know how to say it or when to say it. And then there would be a moment when I would want to say it, and then I would do something really ridiculous, and she was mad at me, and I had to just hold back and can't say it yet. I needed the right moment when we were both so into each other, just staring and everything. That's when you want to say those things or ask those questions. And I find it really, really interesting, if not odd, that God showed up with his people at a time when they were, let's just, they were in a disagreement, a big one. God had delivered them, and they were angry with him. They didn't like the gifts. They didn't like the provision. They didn't like the direction. They were frustrated with his limited, the limited access they had to him. They were tired of just waiting on someone else to say, this is what God said. They were grumbling. They were literally creating other things. They were making things to worship in place of him. And in the midst of all that, God, in his own sovereignty, his own his knowledge, and his own plan said, this is the moment. And he spoke to Moses in a place called Sinai. In Exodus chapter 19, it says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He said, now's the time. Now's my moment to make the promise. While you're mad at me and you're running around on me and you're cheating on me and you're frustrated with me and you don't want this to be a, a thing, well, I'm going to break into that now and tell you. Not only have I chosen you, not only have I pursued you up until this point for a thousand years, here I am saying, I'm ready to make a promise. And if you'll enter into this agreement with me, I'm yours for all time. I'm ready to be with you. And he even introduced this idea of possession, which is a little strange, that he would possess them, that they would belong to him. Now, what does that have to do with the wedding idea? Well, the fourth thing that he was speaking into his people when he was trying to give them the picture of this wedding, this idea of relating to us as a groom would relate to a bride, is that he bought us. He wanted us to know that not only had he chosen us, pursued us, and promised us, but that he bought us. Now, this is a very strange idea and concept for us because when people get married nowadays, no one owns anyone else. There's not a purchase. There's not a possession there, um, and nor there should there be. But at this time, as God was speaking to his people, giving them this image of a wedding, there was this idea that you literally bought the legal right in a way to give someone that name. Like they were, in a way, property. And that's awful to even say, but that's kind of how it was for them. And God said, in this relationship, I actually have gone all the way to that point of purchasing you. Now, we have Abraham, we have Moses, thousands of years past. God's people still aren't getting the picture. He said over and over again, I've chosen you, I love you. I've pursued you, I'm not going to give up on you. I've made you a promise, you've entered into this covenant but then he came in the form of his son and brought about this new covenant, if you will. 
And in John chapter 19, verse 30, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, it says, once they had given him something to drink, he said the words, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. His last words were, it is finished, which is a phrase that some of you know means paid in full. It's a a legal term. It's a financial term. It's, you have no more debt. In other words, I am making the purchase. I'm buying you. I'm saying now, my people, my bride belongs to me, and no one can say I didn't go to the very end to be willing to bring her back and do whatever it took to bring her into a relationship with me. After all we've done, he still calls us his. Now, there are a lot more things that I'm sure God wants to get across in that idea. But those four statements are statements that God could have just had a prophet say, God loves you. He's chosen you. Or he could have a prophet stand up and say, well, you know, he's pursued you along the way. Don't forget that. Or that he ultimately has made you a promise or that he's bought you. But God realized that we need more. We need an image. We need to understand to a greater degree. And so God said, it's like a wedding. It's like me understanding what it takes for us to come together and me doing everything possible. Now, I hinted on a few of these things, but I want to actually walk through what we're talking about here from their perspective, from a Jewish, ancient Jewish wedding. In, in their time, in their place, and you just be thankful you don't live during that time, but in that time and place, the father would choose the bride for his son. So all you young men, just imagine going to dad saying, hey, go get me a girl. Like That's kind of the thing. Like, go, go get someone for me. Um, the father would choose the bride for his son. And then once that selection was made, the father would then go to that family and make an agreement. Hey, these are my son's intentions. This is what we're going to do. This is how it's going to unfold. This is how we see this thing happening. And then that father would find the price for the bride. Each bride would have a price. He would literally have to pay the family in order to have her leave that family and be a part of yours. Like there was a price to be paid. I don't know how they worked that stipulation out, if it was how wealthy you were or how, I don't have no idea. But there was a price that was paid for each bride. After that, the proposal had to be accepted. People weren't just pushed into it necessarily. It wasn't 100% dad said, so it's going to happen. There was still an acceptance. I mean, maybe at some point there were brides that said, not him, not happening, not that family. There's no way that's... And so maybe that things fizzled there. But there was an understanding that an acceptance of the agreement had to be made. How much say-so some of them have, we don't know, but we know there was an acceptance. Then there was a contract, a prenup that was signed. And this was these thousands of years ago. That in case something happens, this is how it's going to unfold. Here is the provision. Here's how it's all going to work out. And should this happen, then this happens. And here's what we'll get. Here's what she'll get. And here's how it's going to unfold. And somehow if we back out of the ceremony, this is what's going to happen. There was an agreement, a contract that was actually signed. And then once the contract was signed, the groom actually went home. The groom would go to live with dad and mom or wherever he was, and the bride would stay there with her family. And while they're apart, that's when the preparations are being made. So if you and I are taking this idea of relating to God as a bride relates to a groom, this is where we are in the process. Because God the Father chose the bride for his son. He showed up in Abraham's life and said, it's going to be you. 
It's going to be you and your people and everyone that comes after you. I'm choosing you. Once he made the choice, there was an agreement, a covenant that had to be made. And he met with Moses on Sinai, on that mountain, and said, here's the covenant. Here's the agreement that I'm making with you. If you do this, then I'm going to be your people for all time. And then thousands of years later, God said, there's a price still to be paid to get that bride home. For this wedding to happen between my son and the bride, there's a price to be paid. And then it was paid on the cross. And that's why Jesus spoke up and said, paid in full. This debt had been paid. Well, after that takes place, there is a contract. There is a promise, if you will. And if you read through the New Testament after Jesus left, there's this small little explanation in the book of Ephesians that says the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is the ring. God said, I'm going to give you a ring, a promise. I'm going to actually let you know that this is going to take place. I'm giving you a little bit of me to assure you. I'm giving you insurance of the relationship, and it's the Holy Spirit that's actually going to live in you. And then there's the separation, which is where we are now. And that's why in John chapter 14, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and to prepare a place for you, you can be sure that I'm coming back to take you to be with me. Now, this idea is different for you and me as it was for them. And by that, I mean a modern understanding of the bridegroom situation is that the groom waits on the bride. I think that's behind the country song, Waiting on a Woman. I think that's kind of the whole thing, right? You're just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. One of the Christmas gifts that I gave my wife this year was a digital copy of our wedding. We were married in the 90s, and so everything's VHS, and it's rotting, and up in an attic, somewhere, you know, the whole bit. So I said, no, I'm going to do that thing this year. And we've talked about, you know, trying to salvage some tapes and video through the year, but I actually did that this year. So on Christmas Day, kind of had the whole deal where, you know, she closed her eyes. My son was in on it and closed her eyes. I uh, put the TV together, got it ready. I have a DVD, a little USB, and all sorts of media formats of the wedding. And I popped that thing in. She opened her eyes, and there was our wedding, which we really hadn't seen in our whole, you know, time together. So we're watching this, and, uh, you know, the whole thing's unfolding, and there's a, you know, VHS style, you know, it's still there. But... It's grainy, but you're watching it, and probably the most memorable part is just watching me just stand there like this for, it looked like, 45 minutes, just waiting on the whole procession, and for them to play here comes the bride and the whole thing. And I think I literally made my son just say, I just don't want to do that wedding thing. I, I'm not, I can't be a part of that. Like, that is my greatest fear, standing there in front of a few hundred people, just praying you don't pass out, just waiting and waiting and waiting. That's our understanding of wedding. But an ancient understanding of a wedding was quite the opposite. Actually, the bride waited on the groom. The groom would go home and begin to get things in order, make sure the house is right, make sure he's ready to now live with two instead of one, make sure financially he's ready. He'd make all the preparations, going to prepare a place for you. The bride, on the other hand, waited, but it was active waiting. And this week, I never really noticed this for the first time, or noticed this in the past, but I noticed for the first time that there's actually something called a mikvah, a Hebrew celebration and a ritual ceremony that the bride would go through. It was the first thing she would do when the groom left. It was a bath in any sort of free-flowing stream 
And the idea was symbolically washing away everything that led up to that point and being able to enter into this preparation phase clean and pure and ready to go, which is really what happened today with my friend Chris as he stepped into the baptism as a follower of Jesus as his first step to say, I'm preparing myself. And then after that, there's this preparation that could last weeks, months, and at times even years where the girls would work and work and go to beauty treatments and spa treatments and make sure the dress and the outfit and the attire and everything matched because they wanted the outside to match the joy that was on the inside. So all the joy she had felt leading up to her wedding needed to be reflected in how she looked and how she presented herself. So there was that preparation phase. And that's what we're doing right now. Those of you who have accepted the proposal that God gave you when he dropped to a knee and said, I give my son, and whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If you said yes to that, now we're just in prep phase. Now, that's hard for us guys in the room to think about being a bride and preparing. It's, just, it's kind of awkward. I realize to think through that, but I just think through chiseling. It helps me as a guy that I'm in the chiseling phase now. I'm not ready to be presented necessarily. There's, there is some more work to be done. I'm still a little rough around the edges, and God is just chiseling me away. So on that moment, when the groom comes for his bride, I'll be able to say, come on, I, I'm ready. Take me. Jesus told these stories as well to go along with these images, and I want to read one of those to you word for word from Matthew chapter 25. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. But go buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day, or the hour. He said, I'm coming for you, and you don't know when. You have just got to be ready. And I think at times the reason we don't get more excited about the return of the king is because we know we're not ready. We've either never accepted his proposal and let him forgive us and cleanse us and begin that process of changing us, or we said yes, but we've just been pretty rebellious along the way, and we look the same as we did when we met him. And we're not ready for the return. Uh, yesterday, I had the, the privilege, at least for 10 minutes until the curse came, the privilege of being at Nissan Stadium and enjoying the return of the king. And I was there, ready to go. And I'll tell you, the most exciting thing about the whole day, the anticipation was about the return of Derrick Henry, who they call the king. The return of the king was coming. And in the morning, I was like, I am so ready for this. Christy said, you excited about the game? I said, I, when Derek comes out, that place is going to go nuts. Like, it's going to be so fun. So as soon as they, were, of course, announced him last, I grabbed my phone, got it out, ready to go. And all of you who saw on television, 3.17 p.m., I was on TV, and you saw me. Many of you texted, like, you're famous. Like, it took, it took long enough. Anyway, I had the phone ready to go. 
I was filming, and sadly, my TV moment was me filming another film. It was is bad. Anyway, I'm embarrassed. But I was filming, and 70,000 people went absolutely bonkers. 5,000 booed, but 70,000 went bonkers as the king came out. And I had thought about it in the morning, and I was thinking about it again last night. Like, when was the last time we got that excited about the possibility that maybe even during our service today, Jesus splits these skies and calls his bride home? Yeah, it's been a long time, if ever, for me. I'm actually already thinking about stuff i got to do Thursday. Like, I'm not even necessarily thinking about that. And part of it is we're just not ready. Like you, I've got some friends who are not ready. And if today is the day, they're being left behind, and it breaks my heart. I have other things about me that I was kind of wanting to fix a little bit before I got there. The Holy Spirit's got a little more work on me. I'm not quite ready. But Jesus said, you, just, you better be prepared because you don't know when it's going to happen. And in the story, of course, he came at midnight and the, the lamps and the whole bit. We don't know when it's going to happen, but he's promised to return for his bride. And our job is just to simply be prepared. And if you've never said yes to him, if you've never accepted his proposal, I just pray you'll simply in your heart in just a moment just call out to God and say, God, I'm still figuring this all out. But if you're inviting me to be in your family, yes is the answer. Or maybe you've said yes, and you've just allowed yourself to get really lazy and assume he's just not coming back in my lifetime. What does it matter? And you've put aside all the work that God has for you. And you're missing out on some incredible blessings because you're just not allowing yourself to stay focused on his return. Well, as I mentioned in the beginning, the book, The Story of God, closes with a talk about the bride's return. And in just a moment, I'm going to have that read, and I want us to together just envision and take in the return of the king. So if you will, stand with me right now, and then we're going to pray together. And after we pray, we'll hear the scripture read that ushers in the return of the king. So pray with me, if you will. God, thank you for pursuing us throughout all the years. God, each of us in this place has an incredibly unique story and a unique journey that we've been on. God, some of us took the straight line directly to you, and we've stayed on the straight and narrow for the most part ever since. Others of us have had a long and winding road that has been incredibly frustrating, confusing, and difficult. But we're still here, and you're still there. And God, we've seen today in your story how you're willing, even in difficult, tense times, to take a knee and to invite us into a deeper relationship with you. So for the men and women, young people in this place who have never accepted your free gift, I pray that today is the day they simply say yes to your invitation. We don't have to understand everything to say yes. We say yes, and then you begin to teach us everything. For others of us who have known you, God, but we have gotten incredibly lazy with our preparation. God, I pray that today we would recenter our thoughts and our focus on the return of the king, that we would be ready for your return. And whether that's turning away from some addictions and habits and sins and private stuff in our lives, or whether that is running to a friend's house to say, I just want to tell you that Jesus is real to me. He's changed my life, and I hope that you'll let him change yours just to get our friends and family ready. Whatever it is, God, we want to be more mindful of your return. So God, now as your people stand and in many ways stand in attention as we hear your words, 
I pray that you would take our hearts and take our minds to that one moment, that incredible moment where more than 70,000 people will stand to their feet and welcome the return of the King. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. One of the seven angels said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the Lord.